Welcome along to 20 Minute Topic. I'm Marcus Stead and I'm joined, as usual, by veteran campaigner and blogger Greg Lance Watkins. What is the new normal? It's a phrase we hear a lot and read a lot in the papers, but what does it actually mean? As the lockdown begins to ease and economic activity picks up, what restrictions on working life and on recreation are we going to have to learn to live with well into the future? Greg, the easing of lockdown restrictions was at least in part motivated by a necessity to pick up economic activity. However, this is going to be very, very different in all sorts of ways to how things were before the lockdown. Let's just take restaurants as an example of that. Let's say, keep it nice and simple, you run a family-owned restaurant, there are 20 tables, and your business model is based loosely upon all 20 tables being full on a Friday and Saturday evening on a double turnover. So you expect it to be full at six o'clock. You want them to leave sometime around about eight o'clock, then another lot to come in. That's how your business model is based. So that's, that's like a 20 table restaurant. If under the social distancing laws that are now in force, you have to get rid of at least two thirds of your tables, that's your business model shot to pieces, surely. I would say that makes your business not even worth attempting to reopen. Um, and to do so is really rather silly uh, because you're looking at suddenly dropping from serving around 150 meals a night with the staff and kitchens to facilitate that uh, to serving somewhere below 50. And you aren't going to make a living doing it. You sure to hell won't be making a profit. You won't need that many staff. And you don't need a chef, you need a cook. So therefore, so the, the economic implications are absolutely oh. enormous, aren't they? The economic implications are absolutely enormous. We can extend that same principle across many spheres of life in this country. Now, for example, restaurants are one example, theatres are another. Even before the lockdown, or for as long as I can remember, actually, we've heard about theatres struggling to make a profit. Um, lots of councils have handed over their theatres to private operators in the last few years in the bid to make it more populist and you know, to, take, to take away the burden on the taxpayer, if you like. But now theatres, for example, if they are told because of social distancing, that they can't be any more than one third full. Well, even if you put on something that's absolutely brilliant and very popular, that too is shot to pieces as a business model, isn't it? I think just about everything is. Hmm. Our world is going to change dramatically. Hmm. The alternative is that we ease up and ease up and ease up very rapidly to keep people in business. And because at the end of the day, uh, we have done a very good job of uh, keeping people in business through the lockdown with furloughing and government uh, funding in all directions of what are effectively zombie jobs, jobs that are dead, they're gone, and they'll never happen again. When you say or, never, when you say never, no, this is important, when you say never, People are thinking in terms of this level of disruption going on for months, maybe a year, maybe even two years, as we wait for a vaccine that may or may not ever be created. 
This takes us on then, doesn't it? What is the nature of the virus at the moment? Because we're hearing conflicting things about this. There are some scientists in Italy, I think one of them was given quite a lot of media coverage the other day. He said that in his view, the virus is nowhere near as potent as it was two months ago. Um, there's alternative stories coming out of Sweden about the nature of this virus. I, don't, I know we've talked about Peter Hitchens and his theory and theories in the past. He's saying that it actually peaked at some point in um, early April. So do you think, again, this is all about interpretation and how to measure data and everything else. Do you think we are going to be stuck with this for more than a year, two years, a matter of months? Um, what do you think the virus is going to do now? Because it's very hard to make sense of the data and the very limited amount of reliable information we have to hand. The big problem with this virus has been from the very beginning, we didn't know what was coming down the track. Mm. We hadn't got a clue. Mm. It had all the makings of a pandemic, scientific uh, theory and advice and medical advice have got into something of a habit, unfortunately, of scare stories, uh, whether they're scaring you that the climate is going to um, fry you on Tuesday week, or uh, whether you're going to have volcanic action that will blow up under your left foot on Wednesday week. There is an element of fear built into science these days because it's the only way to attract the funding. We were told quite clearly that this was going to be an appalling epidemic, that it was going to be a pandemic. Now, pandemic to me is akin to Spanish flu, the plague, the Black Death. It is not akin to the annual dose of flu. This has turned out to be uh, a little worse than the annual dose of flu. And there are two ways that it can have been played. You either play it the British way, which was to uh, try and be as transparent as possible and end up with everybody ridiculing you because you had one of the highest per capita death rates. Uh, purely and simply because you tried to add in every single death that was a possibility uh, of being this, or you ended up with the USA, which was cavalier about the whole thing and wound up with the highest rate in the world, the highest death rate in the world as well. And due to the disconnect manner of its concept of compensation, uh, disjointing people from their jobs. So America also ended up with the highest unemployment increase. Here, at least we didn't have that immense unemployment increase as we went through the period of dealing with it, which we have now largely done. We know it isn't going to wipe out 50 to 100 million people. Ah, so you, you, accept, you accept that as a reality then, because if you listen back to our coronavirus update podcast, particularly the early episodes, that was something neither you nor I ruled out. Does it, do you agree with those that are saying then, like, for example, the chap in Italy, who said that the nature of the virus seems to be changing and it does seem to be weakening? 
Do you think this is something that could just weaken and disappear, or do you think we are going to be stuck with it maybe in a different form for some considerable time? Uh, we always said that there was a possibility of one and a half to two million people dying in Britain. Hmm. And there was that possibility based on the scientific evidence that everybody was being fed. The last pandemic was the Spanish flu that killed between 50 and 100 million people worldwide. This has killed 381. I'm not a thousand. Mm. I am not making light of that figure, but I'm afraid that figure is very light of 100 million. I think that this is going to continue as a niggling, underlying cause of death for people in high-risk categories. And therefore, and does, that, does that therefore mean that to keep the numbers as low as we possibly can as something that's sort of humming away in the background, we should, it's therefore the trade-off is we have to keep a certain level of restriction, inconvenience, call it what you will, in our day-to-day -day lives for many months, possibly years to come. Is that what you're saying? I think you're also saying, I would hazard the guess, that people will realise whether they're in the high-risk or low-risk zone and they will increasingly, if they don't feel they're in the high-risk zone, ignore the problem and um, hope to stay safe. Yeah, but it's not just about yourself, is it? You can be not in the high-risk zone, but... Then you go and visit your granny in a care home who is in the high risk zone and you're exposing her and the other residents and indeed the staff there to an unacceptable level of risk because none of us is an island. We don't know whether we're going to be in a supermarket queue behind someone who 18 months, two years ago had chemotherapy. They might be all right now. They might look absolutely fine, but their immune system, because they went through that process, as indeed you did some years ago, the immune system takes some years to recover. So we may be all right, but in the terms of the well-being of wider society, should we all have to be prepared to put up with a certain level of inconvenience well into the future? Um, go out now and you'll notice one thing that you will learn about human beings is fundamentally they're selfish. Yeah, but if therefore, should there be regulation in place to... You are going to be a selfish? Well, we are doing to a certain point at the moment. Every time but I go daily. into the supermarket, I see evidence of it. Uh, yes, we're seeing it under certain circumstances. Um, and then you get a crowd of people wanting to virtue signal um, how wonderfully, how, what wonderful that people they are, and going on a demonstration um, to back um, the misfortune of people who are not like them. And they are shoulder to shoulder, totally ignoring any concept of distancing in their virtue signaling. Well, they yes, and we, we, we've, seen, we've, seen, we've seen evidence of this. Even the Welsh health minister, Vaughan Gething, was saying, um, was saying today, actually, he was saying, oh, yes, you can join in these protests if you socially distance. Those who were protesting outside Cardiff Castle the other day weren't socially distancing. And how does this fit in with his plan that we can meet one other household in an outdoor environment, provided we keep two metres apart? It rather throws that against, uh, you know, throws that into the dust. No, he's a politician, it? he's virtue signalling. 
yeah. Well, I, I, I know all about him from my own personal experience, but that's another story. What I want to do now is, okay, we, we have accepted, and I take on board your point about restaurants and theatres no longer being financially viable because these restrictions are going to exist for some considerable time to come. And that has another consequence that doesn't get talked about anything like enough. VAT, value-added tax, a national insurance accounts for 60% of government tax revenue. In other words, you don't even know you're doing it a lot of the time. You pay VAT on luxury food items and various items that are, that are deemed non-essential that you buy in the supermarket and elsewhere every single day. You pay a lot of VAT, we all do. And VAT is often linked to certainly all forms of entertainment. There's VAT and, and, and everything like that. If the government's VAT revenue falls substantially, which it inevitably will with, what, with the sort of restrictions we're talking about long term, this completely trashes the government's budget, what they have prepared for and how, how they intend to spend the money they've gathered because the yield coming in will, I'm afraid, by definition, be far, far lower. And therefore, how long is it going to be now before... Chancellor Rishi Sunak has to deliver an emergency budget to reposition and rebalance how the yield of tax is gathered. And by that, I mean, will this mean a raid, raid on savings? Will this mean increasing VAT to 40%? Will this mean an increase in business rates? Who knows what it will mean? Where do you think we're heading on that? I think we're heading into a terrible mess because we're going to try and maintain what we once upon a time had. And there is no way that we can afford the raft of government jobs and parasites who are living off of our society, sucking the blood out of it with high salaries for councillors, heads of councils on uh, 200,000 a year, mm. um, these people who are in charge of emptying dustbins aren't worth that kind of money. Mm. It is going to die out. We're also going to see the business model of a number of mega corporations torn to shreds. We're going to see massive changes. We're going to see many small businesses, I would hazard a guess as many as two-thirds, vanish in the next three or four years but we're going to see a new emergence of small businesses they'll just be very different there will be for far more um, family businesses there will be far more uh, small enterprise research businesses there will be far more R&D going on what does that mean what does that mean techniques. what does that mean please um, research and development, right. to research new ways of doing things, hmm. to provide new forms of transport, hmm. new ways of working from home, new facilities. Um, how many people within the next two, three, four years are going to be buying a home studio? Hmm. How many are going to be setting up uh, an office in their home which is literally six foot by six foot 
and they go to work once a month, but do their work on a daily basis from home. Well, I think that's going to be inevitable. Now, for example, if, if the best case scenario is that we get through the winter that's upcoming and we come out the other side and we realize actually we've got this thing under control, how many businesses, even in that best case scenario, would say, hang on, we've now proven for months and months and months that people only actually need to come into work very occasionally and they can do the bulk of their work from home. We don't need this office space any longer. Now, I thought that process was underway anyway, but I thought it may t might take another five to 10 years to fully play out. This process, uh, this, this pandemic rather, has sped up that process to an absolutely enormous extent. And I think even if this t things turn out hunky-dory by this time next year, this has proven whether you're a call center, whether you're selling insurance, anything like that, this has proven that more and more people can now work from home using the technology that's available to them. And even going beyond that sector, even into things like media, I can tell you for a fact through conversations I have had that radio stations now are wondering whether they need all the studios that they've got because a number of their shows, a lot of their shows on various radio stations up and down the country and indeed around the world are presented by people from home. The fact that we are doing this podcast now demonstrates that we can have adequate broadcast quality uh, for the listener. And therefore, that's another thing that will be done from home in the future. There is a revolution going to take place in the workplace, whether we have the best case scenario or the worst case scenario. That much is clear. However, in terms of public transport, whether it's trains or buses, we know that trains are uh, obviously were privatized in the 1990s. However, they still require more subsidies now than they ever did then, but that's another story. Councils privatized their bus services in the 1980s mainly. But that as a business model is now shot to pieces, both trains and buses, because if you're running a privately run bus firm and your business model, you've got a 52-seater bus, you require it to be full uh, morning and evening rush hour, standing room only, and everyone on there paying a fare, if they've now got months, possibly years, of at least, well, we're told, aren't we, 90% empty they have to be, well, that's that business model shot to pieces. So for all the demands that there are going to be on the public sector, to get people who, do, who cannot work from home to and from work, is it not necessary then to renationalize things like buses and trains at this time? No. Why not? Because we're going to end up with a situation, even something as simple as a local bus route, if the private bus company can't make a profit on it, then they'll have no incentive to run it. Therefore, how are you going to get staff to and from hospitals and goodness knows where else? You're going to make far more things localised. What, include, including hospitals? Including your, your entire concept of conurbation. Businesses will move into rural areas. Hospitals will, be, will become smaller in rural areas. So the revolution, therefore, in the way we work is going to be even more fundamental than we've outlined. But unfortunately, we're coming towards the end of the podcast. Just very, very quickly, if you would, please, Greg. You can't prove this. There's only a certain amount of science behind it. Do you think we will still have social distancing restrictions on our lives this time next year? I will. Do you think it'll be voluntary or compulsory this time next I year? I think much of it will be voluntary because a lot of people just won't obey it and you cannot make everybody in society 
a lawbreaker. Otherwise, if you train them to break a law of social distancing, it's not very long before they've broken the law of locks and um, possessions and so many other things. It's one of the dangers of having too much law because once people start to break the law, it becomes a habit. Well, we might as well break this one as well. Well, my thanks as always to Greg. We're out of time, sadly. My thanks to you for listening as well. Do stay safe, use your common sense. We'll see you again next week. Indeed, and it will, on a progressive basis, be a changed world.